0: fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to G B T. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. Who does that? We do. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, the doctor,
1: Michael Denon. Great to be here, Dan. I'm looking forward to this final discussion, and we really get into some cool technology. Who doesn't love a screwdriver? Well, who doesn't? I know someone who does, and that is Dr. Who. He loves a
0: screwdriver, and I imagine there's someone else on our team who loves screwdrivers. As a matter of fact, he told me all about different drill bits uh, on our episode. I talked to him on fascinating nouns, and that, of course, is the enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebzer. Ben. Where are you broadcasting from this week?
2: Well, today I'm, I'm just examining these very cool gadgets I found. There's this weird pen thing behind me. I'm not really sure what that does yet. But this ID wallet, it, it will display different things depending on who gives it to somebody else. It's super cool, and I really want to figure out how it works. I mean, I think that that is really the quintessential reason that our show exists, Ben.
0: So let's get some answers here. Now, this is our fourth and final Doctor Who episode, we're going to look at the Time Lord himself, and we're going to come to a question at the end of the episode, and that is, would you want to be a Time Lord, or would you want to be Doctor Who running around? We're going to, we're going to what does Doctor Who do, and would we want to do it? I think, uh, now that I've made it overly complex, but speaking of overly <laughs> complex, you know, one of the things that I want to talk about first and foremost is this idea that Doctor Who is an alien at his core, he is not a human being running around in a cool gadget. He is an alien running around in an alien that can transport <laughs> through time. And you know, this I've always wondered this when it comes to Superman. You know, also another alien who saves mankind is why is he trying to help and save the human race in the pilot episode of uh, you know the, the new reboot series he calls us blundering apes. And I think that that's probably a little more accurate as to what he thinks about. And maybe maybe he's just, you know, trying to be nice and kind and you know the same same way we kind of take care of dogs. But I always found this very interesting. Dennett, I'm curious, why should, as an ancient aliens expert, why should an alien, ancient or modern, take care (laughs) of the human race and look out for us?
1: You know, I think we're kind of in a sweet spot of fascination for Doctor Who. You know, what I love about him as an alien is the extreme similarity to humans sort of and the outside physical shape, which, you know, you could imagine from evolution, we get convergent evolution. Very few of the other aliens, you know, look like humans. There is some bipedalness. There is some symmetry. There's a lot of weirdness, as we've discussed, in some of the enemies. So the, <laughs> yeah. the aliens in this universe are all over the place. And I think subconsciously, Doctor Who feels an attachment to us because of the exterior similarity. So that's one, but two. As as you as I watch and I binge watch, you know the 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 re, the new season. I don't know if it's the same. The old he he does view. I think humans as the ultimate puzzle to solve. Right. He is this super intelligent being, the last of his race, and he sees this creativity and this sort of tension in humans between war and peace, art, love and hate, and he's trying to deal with all of his past. And I think we're almost kind of like a psychoanalysis release for him in the way he interacts with us and protects us. Um, So there's that strange both mental and physical interaction. Um, Ben, do you see a connection there between Doctor Who and us, or do you think he just views us, as Dan said, as as apes or dogs or pets to take care of?
2: I don't know if I'd go so far as to that he views us as things to take care of, but I think it's more he's just I don't want to say selfish, but I think it's just he enjoys hanging out with us for some reason and it's fun and when you live forever you got to do something fun. But I, <laughs> but I also like this alien thing that you brought up how it's strange that in this universe almost every alien ends up being a bilaterally symmetrical four-limbed animal that's bipedal. Like what's up with that? <laughs> Are there no is there no other body type? Uh, Out there in the universe, even if you look at like the the, uh, on on the Earth, there aren't a lot of bipedal creatures. I mean,
0: you know, we've taken over the Earth, so we see a lot of humans. But for most creatures, it's quadrupeds, you know, or or they they take to the skies.
1: But there is that there is that symmetry. There is that bilateral symmetry. Yeah, that's um, true. Very common, and you know, it's just hard to find actors with eight arms. Um, ben and we've talked about the the beauty of the show, right? In terms of like being from you know minimizing the budget, I I, I think that's really more of a budget minimization question rather than a, a diversity of the universe question. But but that's really a question for Dan as our master. But <laughs> right. but
2: if it's, I mean, it is a question for Dan. But I also have to ask the biological question, or you know, is it a biological fact that that this is the most ideal? You know, body type? Is this xenobiology? Is this what we're going to find out there in the universe? Hmm. I
1: mean, there are some interesting constraints. I'm just going to throw some physics in here. We often forget, we we think everything's done by evolution, but I'm just going to throw a little known fact. If you look at horns and antlers, there's really only two types, branching and curled. And this is not a genetic thing. This is a, a simple physics fact that if you are going to grow something... There's basically two solutions, steady states to the differential equations. I'm going to throw out fancy words there for the wow, audience. holy But cow, you either yeah. get horns that curl or things that branch. And they're the only two possible solutions to growth the way horns grow. So when you look at fundamental physics, there's more limits on what biology can do than you think. Evolution can't do anything. It cannot violate the laws of physics. And I'll just say that right now.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's a perfect segue because – you know we all know that animal creatures, as you mentioned, evolution is designed to make the most efficient and most fit creature for the environment in which it lives. And the environment at which it lives is on earth with with a certain set of gravity, with certain pressures. Uh, you know, whether you live in the ocean, you got a whole different set of pressure from the water, getting pulled down by gravity. We are we are slaves. We are creatures uh, existing in a world of of physics. Denon, I think you're exactly right. And you know, speaking of extreme physics, what is more extreme than a black hole? And as we talk, start to talk about the the cool gadgets that Doctor Who has at his disposal. One of the things I loved is that his. We mentioned this on an earlier episode, but that. That his the race of Time Lords created black holes uh, and probably uses them to some some degree in the TARDIS. I love that as the first thing, um, to, to just as a, as our little teaser entry point. But I think you know if we're really going to start talking and starting a conversation about uh, the gadgets of Doctor Who, you know none is more enigmatic, and I'm going to go to you first here, Ben, than the psychic paper. And this is you know, a piece of paper that seems to have the ability to to confuse the observer of what the bearer, the person showing the paper, wants them to see within the realm of their understanding. Now, that was an incredibly complex and, and surprisingly dense way to explain it.
2: But Ben, I think you can see how valuable and useful the psychic paper can be. Absolutely. I mean, I think we've all needed credentials to go somewhere that we don't have. Like imagine, Dan, you know, the Super Bowls in L.A. this year. And I don't know about you, but I certainly haven't gotten Super Bowl tickets. But, you know, you walk up <laughs> to uh, Sophie's subject, Ben, it's a source subject. Yes. <laughs> but if you walk up to Sophie COVID. Stadium or SoFi Stadium with a psychic paper, all of a sudden you're in. Easy peasy. <laughs> Lemon squeezy. You're right in there. I mean, that's one, that's
1: one use for sure. I, I love how, despite all of our conversations on this show of taking over the world and causing the apocalypse and conquering, we, we now are using psychic paper to get into the Super Bowl. It's a whole new level. Well, what's easier to do, take over the world or get into the Super Bowl? Super Bowl comes around once a year. You can try to take over the world. It's
0: the Brain have taught us. You can try to take over the world every single day of the year. I'm with Ben on this one.
1: I, I can see that i you know I forgot about pinging the brain dan you're totally right and and as you say that's a good episode to go watch so you can learn how to do it every day <laughs> exactly
0: well I mean in the psychic paper is kind of interesting because there's a couple uses for it you know we we see it used as a two-way communicator you know we talked about river song um she uses it to communicate back to the doctor which i thought was kind of interesting um but you know there's a couple different hiccups here number one if the person has the the viewer is psychic training, they're not fooled. It's kind of like how the Force works, right? That Those Jedi mind tricks. If, you, if you've been trained to resist it, you can resist it. And if a civiliz- civilization doesn't have a written language, you know, it's all symbols, right? The psychic paper adapts to convey the message you want to convey, not the exact message you're trying to convey. I think that's a subtle
1: difference um, and also, again, brilliant in its simplicity. Well, what I think it says, Dan... What's really interesting is that the paper is both a scanning device and a display device. And we've we've actually discussed this on previous episodes, and I don't remember which one, but we got to um, Ben's fear of antennas. Um, and we learned <laughs> that antennas are both transmitters and receivers, <laughs> right? And, and that's what I love about the psychic paper. And it actually points to where we're going with our technology, right? We are trying to make... You know, sort of thin polymer films that are electronic. We're getting better and better screens that have both directions. Um, if you think about the antenna that's now in your cell phone, it's a master of design to work in the microwave range. So really, we we call it psychic paper, but it's really a psychic antenna receiver. That ha- I I love it because the signals from the brain are weak; they don't go very far. The paper works only in close relation to the humans or whatever creature you're working with. It Must have a small power source somewhere. But it's a very, very elegant engineered design that really speaks to some of that tech we've talked before. So I I, I hope I haven't, like, you know, caused some, you know flashbacks for Ben or some real trauma here, um, <laughs> bringing up antennas and receivers. But how do you feel about this? Are you comfortable using psychic paper, um, Ben, or does that scare you? Now, before you answer, I do want to point out, uh, I don't know if it's radiophobia that you have
0: or antenna phobia. I did a quick search here to see what exactly uh, is troubling you, Ben, just so we can, you know, if we diagnose it properly, we can get you the help that you need. Um, but if it's a <laughs> dependent, it's a fear of radiation or fear of the antenna itself. Let's talk about that and think about that before you answer.
2: Well, it's neither that, really. It's it's the it's the difficulty of designing the antennas that scares me. So it's, it's fear of
1: design of antennas. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. know, it's, it's a very, very complicated
2: subject. And I think even more so, the psychic paper would be a, a very difficult design problem. How do you project that image into the mind of not just humans, but any creature? Like, it, it works on, we see it working on, or no, actually didn't work on the aliens in the bug aliens in Venice that were also kind of vampires, you know, well, they, they were knew psychic was, trained. Yeah. Well, they, they were, were psychic, psychic trained. trained. They knew. So, <laughs> you know, it's this interesting idea of, you know, in some cases this stuff works, the, it works, but it clearly also has some limitations. You know, the the psychic paper does not work on every creature. So in some ways it must be tuned to the human psyche or to, Maybe the weak creatures, you know, maybe it's kind of like the Jedi mind (laughs) trick, only the weak-minded fall for the psychic paper. Well, I would argue, Ben,
1: that it really has to do with the, uh, we talked about this already, the convergent evolution, the limited ways. You know, to the degree that brains are similar in their electromagnetic structure, the psychic paper will work. That's my argument, I think, here is, right, it, 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 it fundamentally is an electromagnetic based technology, based on the electromagnetic signals your brain makes. We've talked a lot about like directly connecting to the brain or not, going through the visual system or not. Um, it probably does leverage the visual system in some ways because you have to show it to someone, so which we know is a great input into the brain through the visual cortex. So you put those together, it, it's relying a little bit on this similarity of evolution across a range of creatures, and I think those are the ones it works best with.
2: I think this is also an interesting question then. If you try, I think though, that it has a fundamental flaw. That if you put yourself in a Faraday cage, and it it won't work on you.
1: <laughs> I think that is a safe defense against the psychic paper. Is to just uh, walk around in a Faraday cage. Um, I think that would look good on you, Dan. Are you are you starting to think about your Faraday cage design?
0: I was thinking about it. I mean, I was. I'm always wondering in in Back to the Future, what is Doc Brown wearing when Marty first goes back? He's got that big head. Thing on and I've always wondered it like what if you could make a Faraday cage that was just the size of your head and fit on like a hat like a football helmet or something uh, it's an interesting thought you'd look I'm, like but, a beekeeper Dan I, I would <laughs> I mean it's it. look if, if I want I don't want to be fooled by psychic paper um, but you know psychic paper seems to have it's kind of buggy in some ways it works most of the time uh, but it's buggy in some ways and I think if I'm watching Doctor Who the psychic
1: screwdriver which is his
0: go to device
1: Sonic Sonic Dan
0: I'm sorry what did I say Psychic. You said psychic, but psychic, that's okay. Psychic, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, no, I'm, it's I'm, a sonic screwdriver,
1: psychic paper. Okay, so
0: it's not sonic paper and a psychic screwdriver. Because that right, would be, exactly. sonic paper would be pretty cool. Just talk to you. We'd that know, would be. That.
1: I would love some. <laughs> that would
0: be great. All right, the sonic screwdriver. Now this seems to be his go-to device. And you know, from what I understand, it's like his it's his own design. The doctor, it's the doctor's own design. Basic uses. I could kind of track down, it picks locks, it projects sound, it fries circuitry. Um, It's also a highly advanced medical scanning device, and it can hack computers. You know, what what I love about this in some ways, it's not the go-to device you would think a hero would have. You know, especially here in America, it's usually guns and lasers and some kind of weapon. But the sonic screwdriver is a weapon. It just requires intelligence to use, which is kind of cool, but it also, you know, it's got its downsides as well. It doesn't work in every situation, which is why I don't know that I could rely on it, but, you know, Denon, as the doctor, if you had a psychic screwdriver,
1: how comfortable would you feel using this on a regular basis? I absolutely love it. It does make me worried how good I would be at using it because I am the sad human being who has trouble figuring out how to get, you know, uh, the screwdrivers that look like power drills to work. Like I don't know what my problem is with those. Um, I think but, it's just called
0: a power drill. A <laughs> drill. You mean just a drill? What do you mean? do well, no, no, no like these. when you put
1: a screwdriver bit on it, so you know an automatic screwdriver, right? Oh, like,
0: that's cool. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, those are great. You
1: know what I'm talking about? Like those power yeah. screwdrivers. Yeah. yeah. Now ben I know. probably yeah. got this all nailed. I just like always the <laughs> uh, thing or, <laughs> or yeah, know. Not nailed. <laughs> 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 oh, right. They're screws, not nails. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Um, But no, I love the idea of the sonic screwdriver. I love its great uses. And this is another brilliance though, I think, Dan, of this show, we've talked about it so much, is it doesn't work on wood and they, they never really worry about explaining it. But it makes some intuitive sense right wood has a very very different sort of response to sound waves i'll throw right. out I, this is my episode for using technical terms that don't mean anything to anyone i use differential <laughs> equation i'll throw out phonon spectrum yep. the wood in the metal has a different phonon spectrum and you so they're going to gonna respond then, yeah, yeah. very differently to sound <laughs> and and so it's a clever way to give the tool a, a weakness That leads to funny things, right? Like if if they're locked in a room with a wood lock, suddenly they're locked in the room because the sonic (laughs) screwdriver doesn't work. So you can use it for clever plot devices that don't make you feel like it's being stupid. It's actually clever. So that's one of the other things I love about it. And we can get more into the technology, but just the feel of it, the look of it, the design is amazing. So – I, you mentioned Ben explaining screw bits to you, so I'm really curious what he thinks. <laughs>
0: well, I want to say one thing really quickly before Ben pops in here, because what's cool about the sonic Screwdrivers you mentioned about humor. Again, what I love about it is that technology, highly advanced technology, doesn't always get you out of jam. Sometimes you need that analog technology, yep. I love it. So, Ben, I know you, you love analog and advanced technology, both of which you create.
2: I think what is also awesome to me is how the sonic screwdriver is also the ultimate universal remote control (laughs) truly (laughs) universal in the hands of dr who since he goes all over the universe but you see it it can control the tardis it can control any electronic somehow this you know we've we talked about it's like the ultimate hacking device you know it's like r2d2 without having to actually plug into the computer terminal terminals and do the little twisty things you know it's it's this amazing thing like you know, we talked about quantumness in previous episodes, like it must have some incredible quantum, you know, decryption technology so it can get through any security program. You know, this is truly an amazing piece of technology. And I'm, I'm constantly amazed by how universal and how versatile the doctor is able to uh, channel his genius and creativity through this singular device.
1: You know, actually, Ben, I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction. I think this is what is brilliant and why he gets around every security system. If you think about sort of every way um, we've seen security attempted in the digital world, right? Mm -hmm. You are always trying to break the security through the interface that the system has, whether it's Mm -hmm. a keyboard, whether it's a direct connection, right? And so the security assumes that the person isn't going to mess with the hardware, Right. That you can't get in and manipulate (laughs) the actual electrons in the hardware. Right. Because the assumption is you actually can't see where they need to be to get the right output. And what I love about this in my mind is he's figured out how to directly couple sound, which you can do to the materials to generate the exact electrical signals you need. To bypass any you, you are bypassing any security because you're literally manipulating the hardware directly through your own interface. You're not even relying on having to go through the code as a communication device to the hardware. So it's direct to all hardware. And so it's a, I, I love it as a, a sort of clever way to get through everything. It's even better than R2D2's little method. <laughs> oh,
0: whoa. You can't disparage R2D2 on this show,
1: And How dare you? No, no, you? R2D2 is awesome. I'm just saying this is awesome. It's one step above. Okay.
2: Yeah. All right. Fair it's enough. It's also I... faster. R2D2 is usually cranking on that computer terminal for way too long.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah. It's a complex <laughs> series of twists and torques uh, of what R2D2 needs. You know, and as you, you know, to go with what you said, Ben, about this being versatile, you know, uh, I, I don't know why I keep bringing up River Song. I'm, I'm compelled by this storyline. I need to finish it because uh, it's fascinating to me, but you know, in one of the episodes, he uses it, um, the silence in the library, again, he uses the sonic screwdriver to save her essence, um, almost like a USB port into the sonic uh, screwdriver, yep. which again shows just how versatile that it is. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's anything more versatile in in the Doctor Who universe, then Doctor Who himself, who, as we mentioned, is not human. He's an alien and has quite incredible biology, which is, you know, Gallifreyan physiology. Uh, it, it's, he's classified as humans as a Dominus Temporis. So just in case, you know, you have any biology <laughs> tests coming up. Uh, yeah, obviously, we know about regeneration. He's got multiple organs, special conditioning. He's a very special creature. Um, you know, I don't know, Denon, where, where do you want to start with this? What What's your favorite part of just the biological essence of Dr. Who?
1: I think my favorite part is that he actually has two hearts. I have to admit, um, going up through the school years through biology, you know, I learned we were about bilateral. We had two spheres to our brain. We had two lungs. We had two kidneys. Um, It always found it kind of strange that we only had one heart and one liver, and I wondered if that was a mistake. Were they supposed to be two hearts or two livers and just one messed up? Like, is that the matching, or or are you supposed to match the heart to something else? That some people need two livers, so... Yes, no, they do, and some (laughs) people probably need more hearts. Um, Sure, yeah. (laughs) But but it's an interesting twist of our bilateralness, that we don't have the two hearts. So I, I actually liked that symmetry, that he had two hearts, and it actually... I know, Dan, I know you have a thing against um, Wolverine a bit and his regenerative power. I do. Right, you know? It's I, too I, powerful, I, a it. I know. And I agree with you on that, the extreme power. And what I love about the two-heart model is it makes Doctor Who more survivable but not infinitely powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that sweet spot for the two hearts. So that, that's my take on the biology. Two hearts, favorite
2: part. Two hearts,
0: are apart. <laughs> now, what? Now, now, I'm curious. What about you, Ben? Because you know, I know, but bi- you know, biology bilateral. I think it's called um, b- a binary vascular system. I-, I-, I like this as well. He can live without one of the hearts, but it is difficult. I mean, as far as you know, being compatible with. I mean, looking at human biology and how it's how it would be compatible. Having two hearts would be quite a different experience as human beings. Uh, but I think this is probably one of the most interesting. Ad- advantages of being uh, a Gallifreyan. What do you think?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think what what's really fascinating about the potential for two hearts is how would they work together. Like, do they do you have two completely independent circulatory systems? That you know, is it that there's one side, your left side's on one heart, your right side's on the other heart, or is it something a little more advanced? Are they? Is it one sort of set of vascular vascular is it one set of vasculature where you have your veins and your arteries and but then there's two hearts pumping it is it a cold swap is it a cold spare like is one heart just not working (laughs) and there's like a little (laughs) kickover valve in case one of them dies that way you just got a backup in case you need it i mean there's all these awesome potentials i don't although i think we know it's not that one because you can hear the two heartbeats when they, you know, when they are with the, the um, injured Doctor Who, they can hear both heartbeats, so it's not that. Something else is going on. Both hearts are somehow involved, and I've got to wonder, Dan, what do you th- how do you think they're working together?
0: Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I like the idea of it being, are they in parallel or are they like a redundancy? You know, I mean, are they working together or is, you know, one a backup? Uh, it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, to answer, to bring Denon's kind of question in here as well, you know, it's been said that that, that a Gallifreyan has four of everything humans have two of and two of everything else, which I don't know if it's, bilaterally symmetrical. I don't know where they sit in the body from, uh, you know, from a symmetry standpoint, but from a number standpoint, that's still bilaterally symmetrical or at least an even number.
1: Yes. No, I I agree with you, Dan. It is an even number. You got that part right. (laughs) <laughs> so so that's really good. Um, what, what I do think, you know, it, it makes me think a little bit of the human kidneys that, right, we only need one. If, if we're desperate, we can give one kidney away and work. And that's clearly what happens here. Mm. He re- at least two or three episodes I've seen, one heart is either stopped completely or injured. And as you said, Dan, he gets to keep functioning, but he's not at full strength. Right. He, he's weaker. So this says he does use both. I think I think you're right, Ben. Right. It's obvious he's using both. You hear both heartbeats. If one goes, he's weaker. Um, he's strongest with two. Suggests to me that and it's certainly not a left side, right side thing. It's not like when one went out, he'd lost half his side, um, half his side, half his body. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> So, you know, I, I think there, there's an overlappingness of these systems. They're both everywhere in his body. They're not totally linked. they are probably two independent circulatory systems that the body uses both of at all times. So when you lose one, you're at half strength. That's kind of what I get from the behaviors I see in the show. Um, yeah. Which is kind of neat. It's a sort of a backup, but not really. We well, also have to think about if you're looking at two hearts. What is the what is the you know what is the
0: vascular part of that system look like? Are there two lungs? You know, from what I understand, they have a, a gallifreyan has a high capacity vascular tube system. They're not really lungs, so to speak. But lungs and hearts. If you're going to change one and, and double the power of the heart, you, you got to work on what what do the lungs look like to be able to withstand that force, especially if they're working in concert
2: and not a redundancy. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's also interesting is, you know, we're talking about all this, I guess maybe taking the lungs out, replacing the lungs gives you room for all the other stuff. But <laughs> are are yeah. are the Gallifreyans themselves bigger on the inside to fit all this extra, all these extra organs there? <laughs> like, did they d- is the TARDIS inspired by their own biology?
1: Yeah, that's kind of a freaky thought there, Ben. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I mean, also, they could just be leaner. They could have just way less fat than we do. Um, and that's where all the other stuff is.
0: <laughs> well, if you look at, I mean, Ben, you're an engineer, right? There's nothing that excites an engineer more, especially exciting an enigmatic engineer uh, is one of the things that we like to do on the show. But nothing must excite you more than finding an efficient way to put stuff, you know, using the, that Tetris mind and fitting more stuff in a smaller
2: space. Um, that's got to be exciting for you. And I think that's what, you know, what's going on here. Absolutely. But what I think is even more exciting is, uh, you know, space, weird time, weird spacey wastey stuff. Where there's mm-hmm. more space than there should be, that's even spacey, cooler. Spacey, wacy, like timey, whiny. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. These are technical
0: terms, Denon. It's time for Ben to drop some technical yeah. terms, uh, <laughs> right. uh, on the show. You know, and you know, I think that that's it's an interesting thought, and maybe it speaks to the regeneration. I want to talk about. You mentioned this, Denon. Um, you know, compared it to Wolverine, and I think it's an interesting comparison because you know, from as the master of film and television, I mentioned that this is the greatest way to be able to switch actors and have no one really care about it, uh, or at least be able to do it as long as there's an acceptance <laughs> transfer of power between Doctor Who and the creators. Um, But, you know, what's kind of weird about it is sometimes he regenerates into what appears to be an older body, (laughs) which which I thought that was a little strange to me. And also it's a it's a it's a system that triggers when his body's at a critical you know it's it's just like a phoenix right the phoenix dies and then is reborn in some ways when his body is shutting down it reforms and that's interesting to me and and it it must be at the cellular level because we learn in an episode that the cells of a time lord are very coveted by other races and i think they want to burn him uh burn him to, to pieces in one of those because someone stops the regeneration process ultimately killing the time lord so it's not like wolverine where it's an automatic thing that lasts forever. I mean, if you stop the process, you stop the time lord. So there are a lot of interesting parts of this regeneration. How it
1: works is beyond me. Well, you know, there's one other interesting twist, which I finally got to the episode where we learn all about it in detail, Technically, he only gets, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, a fixed number of these, and I now know it's 12. I don't know what I said in the earlier episode. That might be an error addition early in this plot here. Um, So it is 12. They get 12 of them, and it makes me think of, for instance, our own DNA and the telomere situation, right? Our DNA can only replicate itself so many times. So if it is at the cellular level, and it is something that's sort of triggered at that genetic level... Um, it's understandable that it has a fixed amount of time. And it requires actually a special connection um, in an episode with Gallifrey to lead to more than 12 when the writers realized, oops, um, we didn't expect the show to go quite this long. (laughs) And we need need some more regenerations. (laughs) You know, when I think about it, I love the analogy to the Phoenix. I think that's the difference between this and say, Most superheroes, regeneration, which is like instantaneous to any wound. And this is why I find it both more satisfying um, and more interesting to think about how to explain. So I'm going to go to our resident biologist because we don't have one, um, Ben, (laughs) to explain where does the regeneration actually come from?
2: You know, that's interesting. I mean, we see we see this stuff. We see like souls of like the TARDIS and Doctor Who kind of transmitting and traveling between different bodies And so part of me wonders, is it less of a regeneration and a regrowth thing, but is it more this, you know, the Gallifreyan soul, the Gallifreyan essence, you know, somehow can just transmit itself into a new body. And then the the body itself, you know, maybe there's a body 3D printer in the TARDIS or whatever, and that's how it all happens. And it's just creating a new vessel for this soul.
0: Yeah, I mean that's almost that's as dubious as your thought, that, as your belief that it's a feline. that cats have nine lives, so they must be some feline DNA inside of the, the, the time lord. I'm starting to wonder about you as a biological expert here. Ben. <laughs> Might have to well, go to I- Denon, who at least understood that there are four humors in the body. Um, at least he's up to stuff <laughs> on some medical knowledge. I'm starting to worry about you guys.
1: Well, you know, this is what you get when you you know design a brain trust based on physics and engineering, which we know is the heart of biology. So really, we we've, we've clearly got the fundamentals and the basics. But what I think is interesting is that here, is that
0: clear Denon? Is it clearly like the I,
2: fundamentals and the basics?
1: It is very clear. It is very clear. I right, right. I'm, I'm going to say that with confidence.
2: When you, when you get down to it, it's all physics in the end. Right.
1: <laughs> yes, because everything's just physics in the end. But, you know, I like the idea of the 3D printer. We, we, we've, gone, we've come to that a lot in different things. But I want to go to your question, um, Dan, of why sometimes the body's older and younger. And I think what we have to understand, right, is you're using a human-centric standard for older and younger, right? The doctor has lived for hundreds of years already. So any of these bodies um, look young compared to a human at the equivalent doctor age. Right, so so that is less of a problem, okay. right? I, I I do think it's an interesting um, e equals mc squared situation here. I think the doctors matter briefly becomes energy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then it's going to convert back to matter, right? There they look. They control black holes. They control space time. Mm-hmm. Things are a little warped, and, and I just think in that translation back. Is a quantum roll of the dice as to what level, you know, what is the exact nature of the DNA for the body. And it's not quite the body. We see when the David David Tennant doctor shows up, he's asking himself questions like, what's my personality? Who am I? Am I this or am I that? So they have all their memories. They know they're the doctor. But they not only get a new body, they get a new personality. And it shows that the brain and the physical structures do control some level of our emotional and personality. So I like that feature as well. So it's all coming together for me, Dan. Well,
0: it is coming together, and you mentioned you mentioned DNA. Uh, I mean, I like the idea that it like splits them apart into energy, turns them back into matter, and gets it pretty close. I mean, you know, yep. <laughs> we we deal with a lot of pretty closes on this. You know, Ben talks about how you know the, our GPS finding the Earth is pretty close. Even that's difficult, considering how fast everything is moving. Everything is relative. Uh, but you mentioned DNA, and this is the last thing I want to talk about because their DNA is a little different. A uh, Gallifreyan DNA is a triple helix configuration. And it's 23 homogeneous triads, not not pairs, and there's 69 chromosomes on 23 um, 23 homogeneous triads. I mean, this is interesting because now you're sticking the number three in there, and this is you know not bilateral symmetry, but by, but trilateral symmetry when it comes to DNA. Maybe there's I don't know if every organ is a factor of three, uh, but I don't know if there's something else here. But it's the, the triple is interesting. I think uh, I don't know where I'm
1: going with this. So hopefully then and you will take this somewhere. Well I just love triangles. They're one of my favorite shapes. And if you think about <laughs> life, right, uh, when you when you take geometry as a kid, most of what you do is with triangles and, and the number three. So three really is a special number. We know it has a lot of power in the universe i'll go very briefly and you know and become a numerologist for like 30 seconds and (laughs) then deny it as a resident Um, (laughs) numerology expert (laughs) right yeah yeah, for for three you know for three seconds and then i'll stop um but no i i do think you know there's a stability to basic triangular structures um we know when we build things that sort of hexagonal which is based on the triangle um really helps you know if you're going to engineer a bridge you don't make it out of rectangles. You know. You make it out of triangles. Rectangles squash and fall over. Um, so there's a lot of strength and um, symmetry associated with things around three. So I think that's where the doctor's coming from with this. Um, would you agree with that, Ben, or would you, would you see a different value to the number three here?
2: Not so much three specifically, but what I like about this idea of a triple helix DNA instead of double helix DNA, part of our DNA, like the double helix, it... Each side can encode the proteins, and there's somewhat of an error check by having them, you know, come together. And if if a base pair gets flipped, it can maybe be detected because it won't properly um, bond with its its pair on the other helix. But with a triple helix, now you have voting. Now you can have a majority rule when when that uh, bonding attempt occurs. And so you now have this interesting situation of. You have a far more robust error checking in the DNA, and maybe that's what enables the doctor to live so long and regenerate is that this tri- uh, tri- this uh, triple helix DNA has a much more robust error checking mechanism.
0: I mean, that's fascinating. I didn't think about that. I mean, I, I love the idea of air checking. I also love the idea of DNA voting on who gets picked, you know, um, because I think voting is an essential part of our democracy. And I think voting will be an essential part of what we're about to do next, taking all that into consideration. Would you... And by you, I mean you and you, Den, And I'm pointing right to you guys. You and you, Ben and Denon. <laughs> wh- wh- would you apply for the job of Time Lord? I think this is kind of an interesting question because, you know, uh, who knows what we're gonna? Do. I, if I say anything else, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit. Um, but Ben, I'm going to go to you first, as someone who mm-hmm. I feel like, from a personality standpoint, I could see you being the Doctor. Um, wh- what would you do? Would you want to be? Would you take this Time Lord? Would you take up the mantle of Doctor Who and run around in a TARDIS saving humanity and all every everything else?
2: Uh, I, well, I'd certainly take up the mantle. Uh, whether the saving humanity, maybe, maybe not Uh, because it kind of seems like the mantle that's that is it the mantle yes it kind of seems like he can do whatever he wants uh you know my first thing would be see you know can you go back 65 million 70 million 100 million years ago and see what the dinosaurs actually looked like i mean that's my first uh trip Uh uh-huh well so you just want to take the
0: tardis for a ride you don't want to be dr absolutely i want to
2: i want to figure out you know there's all these questions we have back in history of like what did certain animals look like what you know, what was the library at Alexandria really like? You know, there's all this cool stuff in our past that we've lost to time that I think, you know, being a time lord, we could uh, kind of resuscitate our histor- history and find out the real truths and uh, bring them back forward to humanity and maybe save humanity that, in that sense. Like, what if we got some real good HD video of dinosaurs? You know, that'd be some fun stuff to... uh You know, that'd be the real (laughs) Jurassic Park that we could show and save humanity that way. Well I'm
0: gonna say something really quickly because I think I wanna see what else you have to say about this because Don't forget, Time Lords are immortal. We've just described an extensive history that they have. Now, so when you go back in time and check out the dinosaurs, that could take all of uh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. What are you going to do for the rest of eternity once you've seen what the dinosaurs look like? Picking up the mantle of Doctor Who requires a lot of responsibility, Ben. I'm not sure you're ready for it. You might be like a kid with a gun. I'm worried here, Ben. I'm going to let you clarify it really quickly before I move on to Denon.
2: I mean, the dinosaurs existed for hundreds of millions of years, Dan. There's, there's plenty of dinosaurs to look at. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're going to vote on whether we
0: should be – whether we want it or not is one question. Whether we should be it is an entirely different question.
1: in what about you? Uh, would you apply for the job of Time Lord? Well, you know, there's parts of it I love. And, and the first part I'm going to go with is, you know, I love to travel but i've discovered <laughs> you guys just want to run around in the tardis <laughs> wait wait no no dad i'm getting there i'm getting there i love to travel i love helping people right and and i love making new friends and being social but <laughs> I, an important part to me is i really like i've discovered i'm i'm really really love traveling in comfort mm-hmm. and the tardis is the best way like i could imagine being doctor who and wanting to save people and do all that and taking the mantle and just getting really annoyed by being uncomfortable all the time, right? And having to deal sure. with really bad conditions. But if I have the TARDIS, I've got my swimming pool. Like being chased by a Dalek, for example. <laughs> I've got my library. Yeah. Right. You know, I've got I've got chains of clothes whenever I want. I've got, I know I'm gonna have internal, you know, you know, plumbing and running water and air conditioning. Um, so the TARDIS is the perfect environment. For doing what I naturally want to do, which is help people, meet people, defend the earth, but do it in comfort and safety, right? So there's a really good (laughs) balance there, um, (laughs) which is important to me. And and I know I can always get chocolate chip cookies if I have the TARDIS with me. I will tell you the part that worries me about being Doctor Who. So it's a subtle question. Time Lord, I like that idea. Being Doctor Who himself... I'm not sure, Dan, that I have the mental fortitude to handle being the person who wiped out his entire race while wiping out the enemy we're and live somewhere. with all eternity of that. Yes, right, like that. That I, I, if I'm going to be completely honest, I, I I don't mind the job, right, of <laughs> running around and saving humanity. Yeah. I love the gadgets. I mean, give me a Tardis and a sonic screwdriver every day. I love the psychic paper, but I don't need it. Um, not sure I could deal with the stress and guilt and angst. That's where I am.
0: <laughs> well, now we're getting somewhere. Now that's that's would you beat Doctor Who? Those are the questions we're asking. I mean, look, I'm t- if if I'm if I'm in charge of Gallifrey and HR right now, and we're doing some interviews here. You guys are getting out immediately. There's no way you're going on to the second step of the interview process. That's are are you saying
2: we would be wasting office resources? Dan?
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> do, do not assign these guys to TARDIS. Don't even. Don't even walk around the office to meet anybody like that. You guys are not involved.
1: Doctor who stole his TARDIS (laughs) That's right up up my alley. I can do that when, when I'm pissed at HR for (laughs) kicking me out (laughs) office (laughs) stuff for sure. Uh, but yeah, so,
0: so I'm just saying if I'm in charge of HR, you guys are done. Now I'm going to tell you guys something. honestly, the job of Doctor Who, I think it's serious business. I've actually come up with a pros and cons list here. Um, because number one, I mentioned the superhero thing. That's weird to me. I don't I mean not superhero thing, the superman thing, where you're an alien protecting humanity. I don't even like humanity and I'm a human. So I'm gonna have a really <laughs> hard part with that <laughs> with that aspect of the job. But pros, here what I got. I got I love the suits. He's sharp. He looks really good, look good, feel good, look for the job that you want, dress for the job that you want. I really like the way he looks. I do miss the scarf. I like that cool flair. Time travel is really cool. I'm with Ben on that. You got to love the TARDIS. Who doesn't love the TARDIS? He's got an extra big brain, lots of knowledge, cool gadgets. He's essentially immortal. Um, He's got incredible know-how and his biology is very durable and he's got redundant parts. Let's move on to the cons. Uh, He's the last of his kind. That is a very lonely existence. There are no vacations, Denon. Uh, I know how much you love your vacations, and I know how much you love your chocolate chip cookies. You're getting one of those, um, and and it's not here. Um, He has to remember a lot. And again, he's essentially immortal. That can be cool in one aspect, but the other aspect, as we talked about with vampires, things can get very, very lonely. If you want to get really nerdy in the D&D world, there's a creature called a lich, which is an undead magic user that lives forever. These are creatures that have major psychological issues as they get on in their life. I've got plenty of psychological issues now. I don't need age-related ones as well. And second of all, to be perfectly honest with you guys, it is too much responsibility. Daleks are dangerous. Cybermen are dangerous Every Do I want to be fighting for my life Every second of the day The answer is no While I'd like to Ben I think maybe you'd be more I think you would fit If I can offer you another job I think you'd be a mm-hmm. great Doctor Who companion I think you'd be like a cool <laughs> Rory Or even a Donna let's say You can run around with Doctor Who Have a lot of fun But I don't know if any of us are ready For the mantle of Doctor Who Do you have any other final comments on that uh, before I send you home with a nice little, cool little mug, a fascinating gadget and gizmos mug to say thank you for coming in.
1: I think you nailed it, Dan, because I do think I would love being a companion. That, that seems to be the appropriate role because I'm not responsible for saving other people. I'm responsible for getting saved. Right. Um, And some comic relief, by the way. you could be comic relief. And some comic relief. But also, I feel occasionally the companions add to the solution. I think I'm just smart enough (laughs) to to add occasionally to the solution and not always be the problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's
2: exactly right. (laughs) What do you think,
0: Ben? Do you think you could be a companion? I can see you and Denon both being the companions. He usually has two.
2: Yeah, I could see that. I, I mean, I think, you know, the doctor is often asking the companion for inspiration of what adventures to go on. And I think I've got a lot of good ideas on that.
0: I think you do. (laughs) 200 million years of dinosaurs. uh, That might get as old as a suggestion, but it won't get old as an adventure. But, you know, we talked about a lot of Doctor Who gadgets here, guys. And I think, you know, I have a favorite analog gadget as we come to the end here. And that is my Fascinating Gadgets and Gizmos and Gear-Based Technologies mug, which I have here. Um, You can find it on FGGGBT.com backslash merch. We got other kinds of water-holding containers, as well as several... Incredible T-shirts. I love the stuff there. Denon, what do you think about your uh, analog technology mug?
1: Oh, I love it. Um, I I do have a minor problem with it. It is designed for coffee. Yes. But it seems to work with Diet Coke as well. So uh, it's nice. You know, that's what I love about analog technology is its flexibleness.
0: This is definitely not the place to offer the
1: criticisms of the mug. This is where we're selling it. Well, no, uh, that was an advantage of uh, it. Oh, I see. Right? Like, is is that even though you might think it can only be used for coffee, you can put other liquids in it as well. That's incredible. Despite it's very
2: Just like the Sonic screwdriver, Mm -hmm. the mug can hold any liquid. (laughs) Or even, even solids, you know, sure. you want to put your pretzels in there, have your cereal out of the mug, it'll work for that too. Yeah, and it doesn't have to just be solids
0: or liquids. You can hold gas in there, lots of air can fill it, <laughs> and even some semi-solids. Um, some
1: Newtonian fluids you can even put in there. It can hold anything. Yeah, you
2: can anything. put some Oobluck in
0: there. <laughs> exactly.
1: It can hold, Dan, I'm going to blow your mind, it can hold foam.
2: Whoa! What is, <laughs> and not
1: many things can do I, that. And now, with the as you tweeted out the advance in France, it yeah. can hold foam for hundreds of days. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the advance in France, those incredible
0: bubbles. Go to my Twitter feed. What a perfect segue. As if you want to know what I have on my Twitter feed and you want to get in touch with us, there's an easy way to do that. And that is, of course, you know you can find us on Twitter at we or on Facebook at fggbt But you can get in touch with us individually and find out what we're talking about. What's the best way to do
1: that for you, Dr. Michael well, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. You just flip my name. It's at Den and Michael. Um, and then you can find me on Facebook. You're sticking a prof at Prof Den and Michael.
2: Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? Spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And you can find me on Twitter at Daniel J Glenn, on Facebook, at
0: Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at the Daniel J Glenn. And if you're talking about simple, brilliant, and elegant technology, what fits that bill better than email, you can get in touch with us there at questions at f Triple dot
1: com. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform or just any podcast platform, make sure to rate and review and check that you're subscribed.
2: If you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss an episode. And finally,
0: this show contains powerful scientific information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. So keep it safe from them, because you don't want to be a supervillain like those guys who would misuse this information. You want to be a superhero like Doctor Who and Superman or any other alien that wants to protect the human race for some weird reason. So again, in summary, you want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? FGGBT.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version. Depending on what you like, we got it for you. And if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.